0: Chris trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to midwayusa.com.
1: So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting.
2: It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals how do hey. i start it Brittany? my name, my name is my, name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay it's fantastic
1: my name is mike axelrod start again yeah i hated it too <laughs> brexit you said something in the car to me you said that you were living on borrowed time hmm. there's a perception around who hunters are what we're supposed to be and a A feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Russell De La Harp is a good friend of Bird Origins and is more than appropriate to be the first outfitter that we are spotlighting in our Outfitter Spotlight Series. It's been a tough 2020. And outfitters around the world need their voices heard by as many people as they possibly can. This is our way for you to get to know the heart of outfitters around the world. Russell has been a supporter of Blood Origins from day one. And as a young guide, has chased his passion for bow hunting in Africa and created Backcountry Africa. Essentially a spot and stalk operation for bow hunting Africa. The bow hunting fraternity may have written off Africa, but after you listen to Russell, I'm guessing that you are going to want to bow hunt in Africa. Spotting and stalking plains game and dangerous game sounds absolutely incredible. And doing it in the back country of Africa, when you do not know what you're going to come across, sounds exactly what we all should be doing. So, welcome, Polly. So,
2: thanks, mate. Thank
3: you. It goes fine. That's it
1: job. goes fine, fine, fine. And uh, we are happy to have you, man. You are number one, numero uno of this phenomenal Outfitter Spotlight series.
2: I feel honored. I feel great well,
1: we, we are honored, man. We are honored. And uh, since you're number one, we've never done one of these before. So, we're just going to see how it goes. And how about we do this to start with? Why don't you introduce yourself? Um, and where you do your operations, where you typically hunt, and we'll go from there.
2: Sounds good. So, for anyone that hasn't uh, come across me before, my name is Russell Delehaut. Everyone calls me Russ, so save yourself the trouble. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I've been very privileged so far in my short life to have basically grown up, lived, and worked in some of the most amazing African and even areas outside of Africa, which has been a, a huge blessing. And a couple of years ago, from very humble beginnings, basically started a bow hunting, bow hunting focus, but not limited to only bow hunting, but largely bow hunting guiding operation. We started first of all in Zimbabwe, so we have two Two hunting areas or concessions in Zimbabwe, one of which is largely plains game focused, and the second one is largely buffalo focused. And then, recently, reached out to Zambia, where we've started doing the same. So in Zambia, we don't have any of our own exclusive access concessions, but we have access to what we think are some of the best areas in the country, and we like, we love taking people to show them these areas and and spend time with them there and yeah, that's uh that's a long story short, but that's what we do. Um, we love bow hunting, we absolutely love it. All of our all of us, all of the guides that we work with are just bow hunting nuts, which is really cool. And uh a bit of a backstory on how we what made us start start this was we were I, I don't wanna say the word disgust that it's a harsh word, but we were it it hurt us that bow hunting was seen largely by the U.S. market as a blind overwater kind of hunt, which I don't have a problem. None of us have got a problem with it. It's an it's an amazing thing for the conservation industry, and it's from a wildlife management perspective in South Africa, it's worked really well. So, so, so we're all for it. But for us, that's not our thing. So we 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 basically wanted to show. We want, wanted to and want to keep showing the world that you can bow hunt in Africa on foot and you can bow hunt the same areas that you can with a rifle or a bow. Um,
1: but you're essentially you know, doing Africa. a Western bow hunting type adventure, but in Africa.
2: Basically, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's obviously going to be, always going to be certain differences, but yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of hunt we're, we're, we're doing, uh, which is super cool. So my, my kind of thinking on it is, uh, for any big game hunter that's a rifle hunter, Africa is the pinnacle of, of big game hunting. Like everyone
3: that's a big game hunter wants to come to Africa. But a lot of the
2: bow hunting market doesn't seem to see it that way, which is weird. Because the animals are the same. The areas are the same. It's just the weapon we choose. And I think that's largely because there hasn't been many bow hunting focused operations, especially in Zambia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, these kind of areas. It's definitely growing, which is awesome. But yeah, it was, it's, it's been an awesome couple of years and yeah, it's been very good. Russell, you're,
1: you're, you're lying, man. There's no way that you can spot and stalk bow hunting in Africa because like, how does that even work? That's impossible.
3: I had a
2: dime for every time i heard that, <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd be doing the hunting myself. <laughs> no, it was, and that's, that's what we were told, like even by some of the land owners that we started working with in the beginning. We, uh, it's a funny story, my good buddy, Franco, I'm sure you'll listen to this, will laugh at this. First time we went to what is now our plans flagship planes game area, and it's called Dollar Block. We arrived there. And we spoke to the manager, and we had the whole plan lined up. And he said to us categorically, you will not successfully hunt an
3: animal here on foot with a bow. You have to do it
2: from a blind. And it was just awesome. I mean, it doesn't happen every day, but we literally had a zebra in the skinning shed at like 8.30 a.m. on day one, <laughs> which was walk and stalk. Oh, it was just fantastic.
1: So, so explain, yeah, it a it's little not, bit, explain it to me a little bit more, because obviously, you know, I understand, you understand that we have to be selective when we hunt, right? You are selective in the animals that you take, and bow hunting requires you to get extremely close to that animal, so isn't it going to be frustrating on your clients that they're not going to be able to take the animal because you're going to say, Hey, that's the wrong animal, but we've gotten so close and he's put in all that effort. You know, I guess talk through that a little bit.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a difficult dilemma with guiding bow hunts because as you say, it's, you know, with a rifle hunt, you can spend five days looking for the right animal and your chance of being successful on a stalk on it is really high as long as we found that animal. Whereas with a bow it may take us five or six or maybe even fifteen stalks before we can actually close the gap. The one thing we've learned though, and and it's we you know we're learning every literally every time we set foot in the field we learn something. But the lone bulls a lot of the time are of the correct age class to shoot or to hunt. And We've learned, we've learned the hard way not to waste time bow hunting herds of animals, which works in our favor in that dilemma because most of the time we just ignore herds, really. So anything that's, anything that's more than three or four animals, most of the time we just ignore them. If we're walking, we'll just walk past them. And even, and it's so tempting because you can have four wildebeest with their heads down, feeding, the wind is perfect, but we've just learned to save. No, we'll just go and find the lone bull it'll be a lot better better to store
1: russell um, again very- you're you're lying to us because all we do is as hunters is we kill everything that we see
3: i know yeah i know we just whack, whack them and stack them <laughs> females
2: bulls anything <clears throat> yeah that's a i know exactly what you're referring to no it's a it's it's a it's it's difficult. So, and it's, a you often get, as a guide, We get this dilemma because we also want our client to be successful in the field. And, um, yeah, it's a difficult one. You can, sometimes we have to make the call whether it's, that's can be difficult on certain, especially on certain animals that are difficult to judge. So like sable, for example, is a good example, you know, to, to get in bow range of a sable bull in a free range area is Not easy, depending on the conditions and stuff. So we could, and sometimes they can be difficult to judge from far away. But sometimes you need to stalk them, and then you can get to 30 yards with a guy that's capable of shooting them at 70 yards and say, sorry, even though we've spent six days bouncing around in the land cruiser looking for
3: him, we're going to have to pack it in. But, but nice, most
2: like 99% of The guys we've hunted with so far have just been awesome, awesome guys, and have been on the same page as us from day one, which is fantastic.
1: What would you say to someone who is an avid bow hunter here in the states that they're now their eyes are open to now this idea of bow hunting Africa, and they want to do it the way that you want to do it, spot and stalk? Is there something? I I guess you have to put a, a level of realism to what they're going to do and what they're going to experience when coming to Africa right not the idea of whacking and stacking which is no problems if you want to do that go to an outfitter that has a blind and you can do it but with us that's not something i can promise right
2: yeah for sure i mean i would i would go as far as to say and i tell this to everyone that comes hunting with us is the way we're doing it if you choose to do it like this especially in some of the bigger even bigger areas like some of the zambian areas in particular. There is. There's actually no guarantee that you'll even harvest an animal. You could come for ten days, and if you're going to be a purist and do with a bow, if we get unlucky and we get bad conditions and some other factors play against us. <laughs> it's going to be. It's going to be tough. But what we've seen is, like we had a, a guy on a hunt recently. We were there. It was a seven-day hunt, and he. He harvested two animals in seven days, which the, the weird thing is, is for any other worldwide safari. So say you went to, say you went to Asia to hunt an Ibex. And say you had two Ibex licenses. You harvested two Ibex in seven days with a bow. You'd be like over the moon.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Anyone would. Yet Africa has this, this stereotype of being uh well, I'm going to, get this and this and this and this, which is great. And that's, I mean, it's amazing. We have the diversity there. But do it on foot with a bow. I mean, we have had some, we've, we've had days where guys have harvested multiple animals in a day. It does happen, but there's no guarantee that it will happen. Whereas with a, in the right area with a rifle, I would almost say you're, you can almost guarantee certain species with a rifle in, right. in a lot of areas. Uh, whereas with a bow, even something as simple as an impala with a bow on foot can be. I mean an impala can be one of the more difficult ones to get to the boat. So and that's like your bog standard <laughs> animal for any hunting here in Africa. And that can be one of the ones we struggle the most for. Yeah. Just yeah. because of the and they're always in groups and they're bottom of the food chain. So they're on tender hooks from before before sunrise till after sundown kind of thing. So yeah, it's 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 definitely not for everyone, you know, it's for, for someone. And again, I don't have any issue with it. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I I don't discriminate against any, any other hunters. So if someone's goal is to, he's only got say 10 days of leave for the year, and maybe he knows he's got a lot of other hunts. He wants to do worldwide. He wants to do Asia and U S and Australia and New Zealand. And he wants to harvest as many species of a bigger species range. As possible, and never come back to Africa. We're we're probably not the guys to come hunt with. But contradiction to that, if you're if you're someone, and this is again, it's obviously this is how I see it. Is if I want if I came to Montana to go hunt an elk, a, a huge part of that for me would be just being out in the in the mountains, experiencing the other animals, everything from the bird life to bears to even if it's a bighorn sheep you. You know, that that for me is as much, if not even more, than the harvesting of the animal. So, I mean, with us, we are gonna spend a lot of time on foot covering ground, you know, looking for the right opportunity. But what happens when we do that is we have these encounters with all sorts of other things and we get to see the whole you get we get to see the bush in its completely natural state, which is Awesome. You know, we can walk in I had a couple of weeks ago complete tunnel vision on a stalk, stalking a fukul, and we bumped into five elephant bulls at like thirty yards on foot,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: had a bit of an air flap and a, one of those, and we went after the road. But like, that's something that you'll never get hunting in a blind. Uh, right. That's, but that's yeah, at least um, sure. In, in and in a big area, you could have elephant come to the waterhole, which is very cool like that's an amazing experience to have um and i think this in the areas we hunt it can be anything from hippos elephants crocodiles, lions and yeah just get to get out and see bird life and all that stuff and, and we also we we really enjoy showing all of that to guys that hunt with us you know we're not just we're not just racing around looking for the next thing to stick an arrow or a bullet into. you know if we see a interesting snake a funny bird's nest or something, we'll, we'll stop and show that to everyone. Because I, I, I think that's as much, of, as much value to someone coming on a trip as it is the animals that they hunt.
1: Yeah, so you're selling an experience, right? You're selling the adventure of that experience in a place that's completely foreign. And it's not just, yeah, you're there to hunt, but you're also there to experience, as you said, this new landscape, these new sights, these new sounds, these new smells.
2: Exactly, yeah. Exactly. So it's 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 one that's a I don't know what what I would call them, maybe I would call them a naturalist. So say someone is just genuinely interested in the natural world and it, whether it's the animal that they're hunting or a bird. And we we like to give everyone that, that experience by and, and then the amazing thing with bow hunting is we get those experiences because we're just by nature what we're doing. We're moving really quietly. We're not in a big group of people we have got the wind
3: right. So we often come across these cool little things happening.
2: That's, I, mean, I get as much of a kick out of that as, we, as I do. Watching a, once watching a hunter stick a kudu bull or something like that. Don't
3: mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: you're wrong, that gets me pretty jacked up too. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I mean, like those hippos we, we I, I posted today, I mean, that was just that's a prime example of, of that you know, you're not gonna. That's just something you get from spending time on the ground.
1: Yeah, things like that are really cool. So, for someone who is deciding, like, okay, I want to go bow hunting in Africa. I want to do it this style. This is a complete newbie to this kind of hunting. You know, what are they? What do they need? Like, what do they need to prep for? How do they need to prep? Uh, what do they need to bring for this experience?
2: So, so for a, for someone that's fairly new, especially to Africa, I would definitely, from our operations perspective, take them to our plains game area and them, uh, which is easy to access, um, really good numbers of plains game and all your bog standard species, uh, impala, warthog, Purdue, eland, stuff like that. Um, so all your classical classical African species. The really nice thing with that is we have we kind of have best of both worlds from a boaraging perspective. So even for a complete newbie, we can put them in a few positions that are not, well, this is almost like contradicting ourselves, but what we'll often do with someone like that just to get them on the board is we'll maybe set up a little brush blind, which is literally just a couple of sticks piled together behind a tree 500 yards from a waterhole kind of thing in the dry seat. So that way we get action, especially for someone that's new and needs to work through the shot process and, and things like that because that's going to be the most difficult part for someone that's new to it. Is You may be able to get close, but it's those final moments of getting the yardage, waiting for the animal to be in the right position, getting your bow back and making a clean shot, that kind of situation where you've got the animal coming towards you. often So The nice thing with it is we have the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah, but um, I would think that somebody who would hunt with you, a bow hunter that would hunt with you, wouldn't be technically, and, when I, and I might have misconstrued newbie. You know, when I say yeah. newbie, I mean someone who is well-versed in bow hunting, is an accomplished yeah. bow hunter, but is new to Africa.
2: Gotcha, yeah, yeah, gotcha. So in, in, in that case, in terms of preference, stuff, the number one thing that I've noticed the last couple of years, especially with... Um, foreign hunters, which is most of our most of the guys we guide, is the something it's gonna be really hard to practice for and I haven't quite buttoned it down a part of practice for it yet, is the speed at which you this is really focusing on, but the speed at which you get your bow back and aim and hit the trigger.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Now
2: I don't know if it's like obviously I haven't hunted in the US, so I don't know if maybe if I were to go and By some by hook or by crook guide and elk hunt, maybe I would find the same thing. (laughs) But I think our opportunities in Africa are a lot shorter than they are maybe in the US because we don't hunt, we can't hunt bedded animals here really. There's a few Mm -hmm. species that we can, but largely because of the terrain, we can't find them bedded because we don't have any height advantage other than in a few unique
3: locations. So Cape Buffalo is probably the only one that we would we actually look to find them better to stalk them. That's the only one we look for bed before we stalk them.
2: The rest, the rest, we need to get feeding. So what you have in that situation, you have an animal that's kind of moving around a fair but it's not like a bedded mule there that's going to be lying down. And, and I know the mule deer is also a quick opportunity because it's going to stand up, and that's your five-second window to get a shot. So it's similar to that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been the biggest one is getting guys. So when the opportunity presents itself, get your bow back, get on target, and get the shot off. The the nice thing is because of the terrain that we hunt in, um, a lot of our shots are a lot shorter. So in a lot of areas we hunt, a 75-yard shot isn't even going to be possible because of the cover that we're in. So it's one of those ones where if you can get close, if you can get into bow range, you can normally get really close. So most of our shots are between 20 and 40. That's I would mm-hmm. say our most common range for, for our shots. Mm-hmm. Which on a big like a kudu or an Eland, you know, your, your your room for error there is quite big. So I think yeah, to someone to someone that wants to practice and come out to Africa, I would say practicing getting on target quickly and still getting that nice clean shot off, but in a limited amount of time I think is would be a, a huge help to them.
1: Um, mm-hmm. What about about bow breaking? Like, if someone takes their bow and it breaks, or string snaps, and are they taking two bows with them? Like, um, these are genuine questions from me. Like, what do you do?
2: So, so what a lot of guys do, especially if we're hunting dangerous game as well. So, quite quite often, we'll have guys come on a hunt that are hunting buffalo as well as plains game. They will normally bring a plains game bow and a buffalo bow. Now, what, what the buffalo bow serves as, is it serves as a backup for your, should mm, mm. you have a problem. And then I, myself and a couple of other of our guides, we literally live with a bow press in our car, in our hunting
3: truck. So we can be in the North Kafui. I know the closest
2: bow shops probably Johannesburg, two and a half thousand kilometers away. but. If you, come with a, if you come with a spare string and you hit your string with a broadhead, we can put your new string on and we can paper-tune it and we can get you back to, back to the goods. Um, I've been super lucky. A friend of mine owns a bow shop in South Africa and he's, he's just been on speed dial. and He let me spend some time with him in his shop for a couple of months, a couple of years ago, and I got the crash course on bow tuning and things like that. So, yeah, we can, we can make a plan, which is cool. Um, and we, we also take bows with us. So, I mean, draw lengths and stuff are are always going to be different. But just by chance on one of my last hunts, the guy's bow was went completely out of tune. And it was one of those ones we had a day and a half to hunt. And it was going to take us half a day to change the strings and everything.
3: Miraculously, had the same draw length as me. Picked up my bow, had
2: a few shots, said, feel good. And yeah, off you hunting, went. Hour later, yeah. <laughs> so we, we we do prepare for that sort of thing. And what we'll do is we'll send out, if someone wants to come with us, we'll basically send out a kit list before on your bow, which always includes spare strings, spare cables. Uh, we have all the stuff like D-loops and keep sights, and we, we kind of keep all of that stuff with us. But yeah, for your specific setup. Um, but bringing two bows doesn't hurt, even if you're just on a phone game, because you could even... Your bow could just go out of tune, and you don't feel like wasting half a day of precious hunting time fiddling with it. You just pick up a second bone the second bow and off the races go. And then the, the, the most common question is always arrows. Like, what do we do with arrows? Do we go light? Do we go heavy? Mechanicals,
3: fixed blades, all of that stuff. And uh, yeah, we've we've
2: kind of seen it all, and we've experimented a lot of it. And it just comes back to decently heavy arrow. And most of the time, a uh, fixed two-blade broadhead is going to cover you for the most situations.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, the the solid construction two blades like the Ozcut two-blade elite, I'm also a huge fan of those, so those work. But I would... And again, I don't, have a pro, I don't have a huge problem with them, but it's... Especially when guys are shooting low poundage and stuff, you're more... You're a replaceable blade broadhead, so like a striker or... Electric's things like that they're great heads and we've all hunted with them but in that situation african animals aren't their their bone density is incredibly tough and where their vital sit is a lot further forward and a lot lower down than an american so we're flirting with the shoulder blade we're really flirting with the shoulder blade by aiming where we where, where are going to tell you to aim yeah which is why we like everyone to just use a fixed two blade, because should you hit that shoulder blade, you're still gonna get enough penetration to get through. And the the crazy thing is is it's gonna be like, I mean, I had it hunting personally the other day.
3: Found a diker, common diker, the second smallest animal
2: we have to pursue on the continent. Mid-stalk on the diker, ended up missing it because it strung jumped me. And while I was looking for my arrow, I started stalking a sable. Now, like how can you prepare? Like stalking, looking for my arrow, look up, crikey, there's a sable feeding hundred yards away. You know, if you, if you, if you go into that mode of, right, I'm going to use this light arrow for the small animals and then the heavy arrow for the big animals, inevitably you're going to be chopping and changing. So one, one setup for them all, I think is the way to go. And that, strong solid construction tube blade just covers you from the most situations. Awesome. Which is awesome. And like even ladies shooting low poundage, um, or even guys shooting low poundage, we've just it's been amazing to see the success we've had with uh, with those kind of products. We had a we had a lady hunting with us recently shooting a thirty three pound
3: boat and we were just like oh, no, this is
2: gonna work. And sure enough she, yeah, she was successful in a bunch of animals, shooting a big, solid warthog ball, which arrow almost passed through, and that's shooting 30 pounds, so. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's awesome what
3: they can do when you're right.
1: I want to change our conversation a little bit for the last piece um, that talks to consequence, okay? So, obviously, people come to Africa, and they want to hunt, and they want to kill animals. But there is a consequence to these guys hunting. And that consequence is you and the investment of that money back into conservation, into certain elements and things that happen on the landscape. Can you give me a little bit of idea of some of the things that you do personally uh, in Zambia, in Zim, on your concessions uh, when it comes to wildlife conservation or community development or anything like that?
2: Sure, yeah. So I'll I'll focus on one of our projects. I mean in, in in general what we do is we plow a huge portion of that booking fee and those daily rates back to in essence the landowner or the leaseholder of that area who will then use most of it to cover his anti poaching costs. Um, so in essence we are we are helping fund anti poaching on, on These areas and so to give you a bit of a breakdown of how that works, um we have an area in Zambia now that we are looking after. So when we hunt there, that's us putting the money straight back into it.
3: We have 12 permanent anti-poaching guys there that are I mean,
2: Christmas Day, they were out patrolling. So there there's no break for those guys, they're absolute legends and heroes of conservation, but they need to be looked after. And
3: and in that area in particular, uh, us as well
2: as the landowner there, have been looking after it. Next year will be a decade, and we are yet to sell one single booking there. Wow, because it's taken us that long to get it to get it going um, we, we weren't involved right from the beginning, so the landowner was was involved from the beginning, and we've now come in and are helping with that but yeah, it's been especially for him. Uh, Ten years of anti-coaching and salaries, you know, looking after the guys' families and things like that, which is which is awesome because that's what we want to do. But it's it's difficult to do it for that long
3: without getting any form of any form of reward. From it. Um,
2: it looks like next year we'll, we will start there So, for it's been a long trip, but it's it's amazing to see. So there, in that area in particular, I, I do a lot of uh we can call it wildlife survey stuff so i spent a lot of time there setting cameras and basically even just hovering ground there just trying to see what we can see because we don't really understand we don't understand the numbers of animals there but we know they've come back so when we first when i first went there i spent a week there
3: and all i saw was one group of impala rams and week and you know it was kind of like the the general consensus was,
2: "Well, it's all gone. It's you know? mm-hmm. this little all around. Maybe there's odd you up in the hills. That's about it." And, and, and even down to the,
3: even down to the animals that we would never even think of hunting. You know, the bird life, squirrels, all those yeah, stuff. The area, just, the area just seemed
2: void of life. It was like the ecosystem had been broken.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Just, and we were, our anti-poaching guys were picking up snares. Just left, right, and center in that place when they first arrived there was so that area is fenced by a cattle fence to stop cattle from coming into it not to keep the wildlife it's not to restrict wildlife movements it's to stop cattle and and nomadic herdsmen coming into cattle
3: and they were cutting the herdsmen were cutting those fences
2: and then using the fence or snares inside the inside the area Um so that was, that was what they were up against. But the, the landowner there has just done an absolutely amazing job of getting the community on his side by helping them out of his own pocket with education. He put up a school for them, uh, covered the teacher's salaries as well. So not only is he paying for the anti poaching scouts, he's also paying the teacher's salaries that live nearby. And finished the school for them, pays all of their school books and stationery every year and things like that. And that, that has got the whole community on, on his and our side in, in that area, which is unbelievable because we've got to a stage now where we have a few
3: incidents a year. And they're all, they're all from
2: poachers uh, that have come from a long way away. Mm-hmm. So they're not from them. people that are in, that, in the immediate community that are doing mm-hmm. the poaching. So, what's the wildlife it's it's like today? It's just been, especially the last, it obviously takes a long time to get going, but the last two years, we've just seen an astronomical increase in everything. So the kudu numbers have just exploded. We're seeing on trail camp picks, we're seeing herds of 15, 20 kudu cows with babies. We're seeing bulls. So, so, So what I think is, what I'm pretty sure has happened there is a lot of animals that were outside of that area they have an amazing ability to sense, their, to sense safety and they've piled in from outside and, and of course have bred inside the area as well, but the safe haven has also attracted so many animals, so impala numbers are through the roof. Pudu numbers have really increased. Clipspringer, uh, which is a tiny little antelope, has come back. We never used to see Clipspringer there, we've seeing them in good numbers now. Warthog popped up on a trail camera earlier this year. We didn't even put any water up there; they just came back somehow. Um, but it's taken a long time. It's taken it's taken a decade, and we're really hoping, if the stars align, uh, this year to reintroduce England as a priority, um, and hopefully, hopefully, water buck and Cape Buffalo in years to come as well. So, I mean, this is an area that is this is prime prime wildlife habitat that cannot be. Cannot be used for anything else. It's too dry for agriculture. It's the, there's too much elevation change for agriculture anyway. There's not enough food or water for cattle. So, this is what they would call in Zim and Zambia
3: region four kind of habitat. It's only land use as wildlife. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, because of its location, it was really badly
2: affected by the Rhodesian Bush War in the 70s and 80s. So there was a lot of military in that area, which was which was the kind of nail in the coffin for the wildlife there, which is what wiped out elephants, buffalo. The big, I don't think the big cats were wiped out. I think they've just moved off. So yeah, yeah. We, do
3: have,
2: we do have leopard around, like there's leopard sign around, but it's very low numbers now, but they're coming back. Um, and They will come back and they'll come back in due course. For a so yeah, it's amazing to see it. And, and it's amazing, like everything has come back for so the bird life. I just spent 10 days there birding in December. It's a really good time of year for, for birding in southern Africa because of all the migrants that come from Europe. And just the bird life has come back. The, all those small antelope species have come back. The squirrels, it's just it's come alive again, which is just awesome to see. And it's again, it's not just e- even the fishing in the river uh, has improved because there's now been a, some form of protection there. And, and the best thing about it is it's protection hasn't come from a militant-style anti-poaching team. Yeah, our guys are well-trained and we, they're really good in the push and they're doing a great job. But the biggest thing has been getting the community on, on our side and we, that they can see the bigger picture of getting Elephant back in the area and getting Buffalo back, and stuff, which is just awesome to, awesome to see and amazing to be a part of. And we have big lofty dreams of seeing lions roaming and things like that. We'll get there, we'll get there one
1: day. Yeah, it's funny, Um, you know, a lot of people think that hunters were just interested in removing wildlife, but it's more often not the case that we're interested in seeing the proliferation of wildlife um, and the production of wildlife go up. And so, you know, hunting in areas like you are and and re-establishing areas like this is, is all as a result of hunting and hunters. So, um, yeah, it'd be pretty cool to bow hunt that area for the first time, knowing you're one of the first bow hunters ever to be able to take an animal that has been sustainably grown for, you know, 10 years, essentially.
3: Exactly, yeah. Exactly. I mean, to, to put it
2: in perspective, is there's only been one animal ever bow hunted in that area, ever hunted in that area, actually, since we've been there. I shot one impala. About two years ago there <laughs> and that's it so it's uh yeah the first couple of guys that get in there are like uh, i'm jealous
1: <laughs> yeah it would be awesome uh, well look let me uh, uh let's wrap this up and and i'll let you i've got a couple of last little bit uh in terms of questions and whatnot but any final thoughts from your standpoint
2: all i would all i would really say is and this is mainly aimed at the bow hunting fraternity out there is definitely look and it doesn't even have to be with us so don't don't think it's not a. this is not a marketing plug but put africa on your list to come and buy on because you'll be pleasantly pleasantly surprised what an awesome experience it can be and and that goes for the blind hunting in south africa as well if that's going to work for you and you're going to have a good time you will have an absolutely awesome time African hospitality and uh, and good wildlife. It's hard not to. It's hard not to go wrong. And and yeah, come and explore these places because without without traveling hunters, you know these places are in deep
3: deep trouble. You know the the let's just say that
2: if the hunting industry were to collapse in Africa, the loss of habitat that we would and that's to me the biggest threat for wildlife now. As
3: mm-hmm.
2: Poaching, mm-hmm. as bad as the poaching is, it can be stopped relatively easily with a good anti poaching team and funding and these things. Po- poaching can be stopped and it, will, it can be mitigated at least. Whereas, habitat loss, once it's gone, it's gone. So, like the big teak forests of the north, the Fui and stuff, those get chopped
3: down and turned into firewood. It's going to take centuries for them to come back. Yeah. So, we, if we lose and we lose that habitat we're going to be yeah the world will be a worse place for it so if
2: you want to have a damn good time and you want to really contribute to to protecting some amazing habitat and look into Africa
1: absolutely really amen to that um, yeah all right so let's finish off by us uh, telling people where they can find you you know let's start with um yeah, let's let's start with where they can find you.
2: Sweet. So you can find us on social media, Instagram at Backcountry Africa, Facebook Backcountry Africa, and then our website is www.backcountryafrica.com. Best time to, to come hunting? Yeah. Best time to come hunting depends on your depends on your species, kind of what you want to hunt, but the window is. May to October, so you've got a good chunk of time. And the nice thing is, over the American summer, so before the American hunting season, is a a good time. So, like the Zim area, May June is really good, Um, and then Zambia later on is a bit better, September October. But it's one of those things: some things are better sometimes, some things are worse. So, yeah, it's it's uh that's the window, and any time in that window, we have a we can have a damn good time. Obviously, if you're a little bit afraid of the heat, come in May or June or July, because October, November can get really hot.
1: (laughs) Well, just to remind everyone, that is winter in Africa.
2: Yeah, May, June, July is our winter.
3: So pack the down, pack the beanies, and yeah, if you
2: come in October, don't bother, because you won't need them.
1: Well, Russell, we are certainly appreciative of you. Uh, Love the fact that you're wearing a Blood Origin shirt. Uh, uh in africa and uh, you've been a huge supporter of us and we're a huge supporter of you thank you for being the guinea pig right number one on this outfitter spotlight series and uh i hope that uh, a lot of people check you out especially the bow hunting fraternity here in america and obviously across the world to uh hey go do it man go check it out if you want an adventure like the typical hunting adventures that you hear of in the West and in, in Montana and Utah, you can have the same kind of adventure uh, in backwoods Africa.
2: For sure, sure. And thank you, Robbie. Thanks for everything you do for for us as hunting community, and like this, what you're doing now for us, Outfitters is, is a huge is a huge blessing for us. You know, we can't come to the trade shows and all that, so we really do appreciate it, and we'll continue supporting Fall Origin as long as we can.
3: Yes, sir. The-
1: Enjoyed it, brother.
3: Thanks, Robbie. That was good, eh?
1: Cheers, bud. All right. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.